It's exciting to have a holiday on a weekend because you get a day before or a day after, so this is awesome. We could celebrate yesterday and tomorrow and then do nothing in between. So what a great day. You know, in all seriousness, though, you think about this for one second. Each of us was born where we were born because that was the will of God. And there are people around the world today who are fighting and struggling literally in fear of their lives to go to a worship service. And we live in a country where we're free to do that, wherever, however we'd like. And so one of the things I believe is on us as an obligation as Christians who live in a country like Canada that's free to worship is that we must pray for our leaders. And so I wanna invite you to rise with me now as we pray over the leaders of our country, the people of our country, that Christ would be known in all places in all ways throughout this great country. Father, we're so grateful and thankful that you've set us free. You've set us free for freedom. And God, we know that there is no law that can be made that, that changes hearts. There's no, no stance that can be taken that would make people into the image of your son. There's only one thing that can do that, and that is your spirit, God. And so we pray that your spirit would rise up and pour out throughout this country of ours, that you would touch the hearts and minds of those who know you, that you would invite those who don't know you, and that you would protect and guide our leaders so that the freedom that we love and enjoy so much here is not wasted, but used to glorify you and to make your son known in all places. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, stand with me, continue uh, to stand as we look at Matthew 7. We're gonna look at verses 21 to 23 today in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So listen to this. This is some hard stuff right here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You can have a seat. Those are hard verses, hard verses. And as we wrap up our walk through the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached this morning, I just wanna recap the last five weeks where we've been going through this. Um, I wanna bring all of it to a, a place, to what I think is a very uncomfortable conclusion that's contained in these verses, verses 21 through 23. So in week one, we looked at the crossroads of teaching or training, right? We saw that Jesus' words in this message are training, and they become training for us when we recognize that Jesus came to make us into what he teaches that we should be, and that makes his words training. And as we practice his words, actually do his words, we become what he teaches. 
We, we take the path of becoming holy instead of merely good because Jesus seeks, us, seeks to make us holy more than just good people. He desires to make us holy just as his Father in heaven, as God is holy. And then we sought to become generous instead of simply being a giver by following the road that leads to having a generous heart, which is the same heart that Jesus had, a generous heart of self-giving. And then we walked the path that led to intimacy with God, seeing that God intended for us to be fathered by him and him alone. And that we all have a need for God to be our present and intimate father. And then last week, we found that to stop at knowledge instead of pushing towards wisdom would not change how we live. So we push towards wisdom. We realize that wisdom is acting on what I know to be true. Now this morning, as we wrap up the series on the Sermon on the Mount, we're not so much going to a destination as we are facing a question. Because the destination where all this leads is to that place of who, not where. Who am I becoming? That's the totality of the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Who am I becoming? And this who is most clearly seen through contrast. So Matthew 7 is filled with contrast that Jesus presents. And each of the contrasts that Jesus gives us in Matthew 7 leads to the greatest contrast that we have to face, as any of us could ever face, in the verses 21 through 23. And it's a contrast between image or authenticity. The verses leading up to that help us see the difference between living a life that's driven by image and a life that's lived in authenticity, in relationship with Christ. And so all these contrasts point out the need for the church of Jesus Christ to always be seeking him more intimately and more fully. They point out the importance of personal devotion to Jesus, not simply a cause or concept or ideas about Jesus. And so first I wanna give you a working definition of both image and authenticity. So for our purposes, image is using my outward appearances to distort my inner quality before others. So image, in short, is acting in ways that keeps you from seeing what is really on the inside of me. When I'm driven by image, I'm trying to craft something that you see. It doesn't necessarily align with what's going on in here. In a word, it's hypocrisy. Authenticity is actually consistency between the outward appearances and the inner quality. My actions are aligned with my inner disposition or quality. Who I am on the outside is the same as who I am on the inside, which is the opposite of hypocrisy. Now don't get me wrong, I can be authentically, horribly wretched inside and have that come out. I'm being authentic. Authenticity doesn't necessarily mean good. When an apple is rotten and you see it on the outside, that's not a good thing. But if we call ourselves apprentices of Jesus, we have to understand the contrast between image and authenticity. If we take these verses seriously, and I think it's critically important that we do take these verses seriously, then we have to face the truth that knowing Jesus comes through being authentic in seeking him and serving him. And so first, we've got to examine the difference 
between a life of image and a life of authenticity. And so to start with, we look at the contrast that Jesus lays out in Matthew 7 as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount. And he sets the stage of this contrast between image and authenticity that we're going to find in verse 23 with metaphors throughout chapter 7 designed to help us feel the full weight of the contrast. Each metaphor is a contrast of its own, and it helps us see the difference between being driven by image and being authentic. And so his first metaphor in verses one through five is a metaphor of two eyes, your eye and your brother's eye. One has a speck in it, the other has a log in it. An image-driven person will ignore the log in their own eye and point out the speck in their brother's under the guise of removing it, of course, right? You have a speck in your eye, I'm gonna take that out. But never acknowledging that until they remove the log from their own eye, they are not the best person to deal with the speck in their brother's eye. Here's the point of this metaphor, this contrast. The authentic apprentice of Jesus judges themselves first. Look here first before you judge anything. An authentic follower of Jesus will always look, seek to find a mirror before they look for a window. The next metaphor that Jesus gives us is two fathers, evil fathers who would never give their children something useless or dangerous like a snake or a rock when their children has, have a legitimate need. And then he gives us the contrast of the good father, God, who gives when you ask, who's present when you seek him and answers when you knock. Here's the point. The authentic apprentice of Jesus knows that all their needs are met in God. Therefore, they don't give to prove their value. They actually find their needs met in God. They don't use the needs of others to give themselves worth. And then he gives us a metaphor of two gates. One is wide and easy and the other is narrow and hard. An image-driven person would rather walk on the crowded path headed towards destruction to be seen by many people and to walk in ease and comfort than to walk the narrow path that's hard. And here's the point of this metaphor. The authentic apprentice of Jesus is willing to walk on the narrow road alone if necessary for the sake of truth in Christ. Even though the cost is high, even though it's a path of denying yourself. And then we come to two trees, this metaphor of two trees here. A diseased tree bearing bad fruit and a healthy tree that's bearing good fruit. An image-driven person is more interested in the quality of their fruit, or excuse me, interested in the quantity of their fruit than they are in the quality of it. Question becomes, did that fruit Build up? Did it nourish the souls of those who ate it? An image-driven person is okay with the answer to that question being no. It didn't. It didn't nourish anyone. It didn't build anyone up. But there was a lot of it. It's the difference between being image-driven and authentic. The authentic apprentice of Jesus realizes that an abundance of inedible rotten fruit still leads to starvation. Doing many things that have no value serves no one. A bad tree producing tons of bad fruit does not nourish anyone. But a bushel of good fruit 
nourishes more people than an acre of rotten fruit. And then finally, Jesus brings us to these two builders. One built his house on rock and the other built his house on sand. An image-driven person is never concerned with the house lasting. They're only concerned with how the house looks. Does it look good from the outside? And guess what? If you have no interest in eternal things, your house does not need to be eternal. It can be temporary. You can build on sand. The authentic apprentice of Jesus is building an eternal home that's going to last forever. The only foundation for an eternal home is Jesus the rock. So all of these contrasts between the life of image and the life of authenticity, and they all bring us to the words of Jesus in verse 23. And his words are in response to those who live a life of image. And so let me set the stage for you. Here we have a group of people standing before Jesus at the final judgment. People who call him Lord. So these are not people who have ignored him and disregard him and have denied him. These are people who are claiming that he is actually the Lord of their lives. And then they even go further. They state their case to him. Look at all the work we did for you, Jesus. Look at all the things we did. We did the same things you did. We cast out demons. We did mighty works. That's what they're saying in verse 22. Listen to this. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now listen to his response in verse 23. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The possibility of calling Jesus Lord, Lord, of doing mighty works in his name and hearing him say, I never knew you makes my blood curdle. It troubles my heart to think of any member of the body of Christ here in this place, hearing those words, I never knew you. That's why we have to be a church that takes the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us seriously. That when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength in Mark 12, 30, we must respond. There's a danger if we don't. A danger of standing before Jesus and saying, Lord, Lord, and him looking at us and saying, I never knew you. See, here's why. The word new implies intimate and experiential knowledge. It speaks to personal devotion to Jesus, not simply knowing concepts and ideas about him. See, my longing is that each of us would love God passionately, not to prove that we're somehow greater than other Christians or that we're more spiritually mature, but to keep any member of this church family from hearing those words depart from me. That's why my desire is that we would all seek to love God passionately and know him intimately. See, here's the question that these verses leave me with. Am I helping you become authentic followers of Jesus or am I giving you the freedom to hold on to an image of being a Christian without knowing Jesus intimately? Because if I am doing the latter, I am failing all of you. I'm failing myself. I believe 
that the essential ingredient of being authentic, instead of merely presenting an image of a follower of Jesus, is found in Paul's words in Philippians 3.8. Listen to this. More than that, I count all things to be laws in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, in order to help you see the contrast between authenticity and image, I want to tease out Philippians 3, 8 and Matthew 7, 21 and 23 a little bit together. Let's just start with the declaration of Jesus as Lord. Because here's the thing. Both Paul and the people that Jesus calls workers of lawlessness acknowledge Jesus as Lord. They both did. But then some differences start to rise up. Paul's talking about what he has given up for Christ. Authenticity tries to call to mind the saving work of Jesus. The workers of lawlessness are talking about what they have done for Christ. Image tries to call to mind my works, not the works of Jesus. The workers of lawlessness want to be commended for their works, while Paul understands that his best deeds are absolute rubbish. In short, image says, along with the workers of lawlessness, our works give us worth. Our works give us value. I do great things, I matter. Authenticity says, along with Paul, your value gives me worth. The next point of contrast is in the word no. The same word for no is used in Matthew 7 and in Philippians 3. It's the word genosis. We've talked about this word before. And it means intimately knowing. It means experiential knowledge. Paul is talking about his intimate and experiential knowledge of Jesus in Philippians 3.8. The beginning of authenticity is realizing that there is nothing better than knowing Jesus intimately and experientially. Nothing better The workers of lawlessness in Matthew 7 make no mention of knowing Jesus. They're content to present him with their resumes, not their relationship. Image always focuses on the resume and rarely has any concern for the relationship. Image uses others and their needs to build up self, not to love those in need then Jesus steps right over their resume and brings it back to relationship. I never knew you. Intimate knowledge, experiential knowledge, connection, unity, oneness. I never knew you. See, when we examine Matthew 7, 21 through 23 and Philippians 3, really the whole chapter of Philippians 3, as a contrast between image and authenticity, I see a very deep theological principle brought into light here. And that principle is this, for or with? That's the question. Are your works for Jesus so that you can find some worth or are your works with Jesus to display his surpassing value? Now I have to say that every one of us has had times where we were working 
for Jesus in hopes of finding some worth, some worth before each other, some worth in the organization of the church, some worth in the body of Christ. It's inevitable that that's gonna happen on occasion, it does. But even when it's happening, we have to be authentic. We have to acknowledge that what we're doing is trying to craft an image so that we can repent of that and find the ultimate freedom that rests in Jesus, which is this. You don't have to prove your worth to me. That is the ultimate freedom that comes with knowing Christ, of being intimately connected with him, of seeking to experience him in every moment of my life. He might be the only person in my world that will look at me and ever say, you don't have to prove your worth to me because I have to prove it to all of you. At times I have to prove it to my family. I have to prove it to my bosses. I have to prove it to my friends. But Jesus always looks at me and says, no, you don't have to prove your worth to me. That's freedom. He looks at me and says, I give you your worth. All you have to do is desire me, seek me, know me, and your worth is now a resolved issue. It's over, it's done. And you look back through the contrast of Matthew 7, here's what we see. We see this, an authentic apprentice of Jesus judges himself first and repents of their own sins before they start looking in specks in everybody else's eyes. They know God is the only one who meets all their needs, so they don't feel compelled to find value in meeting other people's needs. They meet other people's needs out of Christ in them, not to find worth. Become the kind of person who can stand on the path of truth and deny yourself, even if you are the only one doing it, even if you're alone in it. We begin to produce fruit of repentance and godliness, not bad fruit, but fruit that actually nourishes. We build an eternal home that's founded on Christ. And as a church, my dream, my vision, is that no one who calls temple their home will ever suffer those words, I never knew you, depart from me. But you know what? There will be a lot of people who have spent their lives in church that hear those words. It's inevitable. And that should scare us. It should scare us to seek, not to run away. It should scare us to knock, not to hide. It should scare us to press into Christ, not avoid him. And I believe my part is to constantly present Jesus as of surpassing value to everything else that you can look for. To help you see that he is so infinitely lovable. You can't help but love him passionately. That he's so magnificently loving that you would want nothing more than to grow in him intentionally. I feel a burden to lift up that Jesus, first in my own heart and in my own life, then from here, the stage in this church, and then in your hearts and your lives. See, this is the Jesus I met in the darkness of my own life. He meets me with compassion. He doesn't point out my flaws. He's my refreshment and my breath. He's never given up on me, even when I have given up on myself. He's my constant guide and he's a companion in every trial that I face. He comes into every one of my sorrows and never turns away. He stands with me in my hurts. 
He never turns his back on me, even when I turn my back on him. He's rivers of love when I feel unlovable. He's waves of mercy when I'm guilty. He's torrents of grace when I fail, and he's the power to stand when I fall. He's the source of everything that is good and joyful in my life. He's my boundless comfort in this world, and he's the only true promise of everything that I desire for all of eternity. That's the Jesus I want to know. And I believe seeing that Jesus will never put me in danger of hearing, I never knew you, depart from me. It's authenticity. It's standing and saying, Lord, this is who I am. This is all I got. And I know you'll meet me here. You don't demand that I look a certain way or act in certain ways or hold to certain beliefs or push back on certain things. I know what you're for. You're for me. And you're for everyone who can hear my voice, whether they acknowledge it or not. That's authenticity. That's the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that Paul talks about in Philippians 3.8. This is a surpassing value that I long for everyone in the sound of my voice to hear week after week after week so that we, all of us, who call him Lord, Lord, will be authentic in seeking him, in loving him, in desiring him, in serving him, in relentlessly pursuing a life with him. And at the end of it all, we get to hear him say, come close to me, because I knew you well. I knew you well. That's the difference between being authentic and being image-driven. That's the point that every word in the Sermon on the Mount is trying to train us to become. Not the person who does these things, but the person who wants that one thing, relationship with him as he is, as I am. To stand with Jesus and say, you don't have to be anything to me but who you are, and I know I'm free to be only what I am. And there we start. And there we start, Lord. You know, I wonder if the biggest difference between one who's driven by image and an authentic apprentice of Jesus might not be summed up in Luke 7 and verse 47. Jesus is speaking of this sinful woman who washed his feet with her tears and then dried them with her hair and then anointed his feet with oil and then she kissed him and then he said this, therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. She was authentic in her gratitude towards Jesus because she was authentic in her view of herself. She didn't ignore the log in her own eye. She knew only God can meet her need for forgiveness and freedom and reconciliation. She entered through the narrow gate of humiliation and embarrassment in front of a dinner party of the so-called respectable people. Pharisees who were the guests at this dinner. She produced good fruit, praise, and love for Jesus. That's the good fruit of repentance. She knew that she had an eternal home that was founded on him. And so now I want to invite all of us into that same spot to do what she did. As we get ready to take communion, I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up.
I ask you to take out those elements and just prepare. I want to invite you to come to Jesus in authenticity and repentance to acknowledge our sin that's an obstacle to deep personal relationship with Jesus. As we prepare to take this bread and this juice, I want to invite you to realize how much you have been forgiven. See, authenticity allows me to face the depths of my sinfulness and depravity and to find a deep, deep need for Jesus, which is what this woman did. And here's what happens when I face that deep need for reconciliation with God and for his forgiveness. I begin to authentically love much the one who has forgiven us much. As I get real with myself at a moment like communion where I can let the Holy Spirit examine my life and reveal me to me, I all of a sudden find the magnitude of the forgiveness that I've been given through Jesus. And as I begin to see how much I have been forgiven, I begin to love him much the way this woman loved him much. Jesus said it himself in Luke 7. Those who have been forgiven little love little. It's not that anyone needs less forgiveness. We all need an overwhelming bottomless supply of forgiveness. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is some of you don't think you need that much forgiveness. Some of you are spec finders, not log realizers. And you come before me and you say, I don't need a ton of forgiveness. I've got issues, I've got struggles, I've got problems, but relative to all these people with the specks in their eyes, it's not that bad. And you never realize that by doing that, you are preventing yourself from loving him much because you deny your need to be forgiven much. Communion is a time to sit in the discomfort of my own sin, to sit in the sorrow of my own depravity and find that there is Jesus in the middle of it overwhelming me with forgiveness that is so great, my only response can be to love him much. And so before we take these elements, I just wanna invite you to sit before God. Let the magnitude of your sin hit you, maybe for the first time, not to create in you a sense of unworthiness or depravity or uselessness, but to prepare you to receive the overwhelming forgiveness that this meal reminds us of, that you have been forgiven much. So just take a moment before we take this bread and sit in that place of, Lord, reveal to me the depths of my need for your forgiveness. Father, as we take this bread together, let it remind us of the sin that 
resides in our flesh. As we remember the body of your son that was broken for us, also remind us of the sin that resides in our flesh, as Paul says in Romans 7, so that we can have a sense of the depths of our need for forgiveness, that we can see that we've been forgiven much and therefore love you much. So as we take this bread, Lord, do that work in us. Father, as we prepare to take this juice, remind us of the cleansing work of the blood of your Son on the cross. He saved us from sin, yes, but cleansed us to live. And Father, I just think of the words of Peter as we remember the cleansing power of his blood. We come to that realization that not just my feet, Lord, but my whole body Let the blood of Jesus cleanse every aspect of us, head to toe. Let it be a scrubbing and washing like no other so that we can stand before him and thank him in love and love him much for the much that we've been forgiven. And so God, we take this juice now together with that in mind. You know, there's a quote that I love. It's this. The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. If we love him much, because he loves us much, shouldn't the world know that? Shouldn't the world see that? This is about a lifestyle of evangelism rooted in love for Christ, rooted rooted in oneness with him, rooted in the comfort of knowing that he's never gonna look at anybody in this room and say, I never knew you, depart from me. Because we're gonna know him. We're gonna know him intimately, deeply in all things. Worship is a way to know God to draw deeper into Jesus. I want to invite you to stand as we sing this last song, as we worship together. But I want to invite you to worship in maybe a way you've never worshiped before. Let it be one-on-one. You seeking Christ, Christ responding to you. Don't worry about what your voice sounds like. Listen, I sit down front. Most of you can't sing anyway. So don't even worry about it. Don't worry about what you look like or what you're doing, simply do this. This is a moment between you and Jesus where you can say, I have been forgiven much, therefore I love you much. So will you rise as we sing this last song?